It has been a pleasure to be with Bruce for the last couple of days. And obviously, I'm from Texas, and I'm up here doing something with a congressional race in Maine. What the heck's that all about? And it's real simple. When you get good government, everybody benefits from it. And because of the way the Congress works, the way the Constitution set it up, every state has an effect on every other state. The Commerce Clause, the, uh, the, the Contracts Clause, all the things in the Constitution. So literally, the representatives from other states affect the way I live in Texas, quite frankly. And so that's why anytime I can find a good, godly, God-fearing constitutional person, I'm going to try to help them get in office because, I mean, even from pure selfishness, it helps every one of us. And so that's why I'm, I've really enjoyed the time spent with Bruce and working with him. What I want to do before we, and Bruce will talk to you a little bit later, before we do that, let me just see if I can set some perspective, 30,000-foot view on where we are and kind of how we got here. And in doing that, let me just take you back to America as, as a nation. Regardless of what you think about the condition of where we are right now, one thing's for sure, we're really blessed people. Um, there's blessings that we don't even think about. We've been under the same piece of paper 237 years. There's 195 nations at the U.N. this year. And every year there's a different number because every year there are wars and conflicts. And, and, and just as Crimea just had its vote, that goes on all the time except in America. We look at the rest of the world and say, what's wrong with those guys? That's the wrong way to look at it. They're normal. We're the ones that are not normal. Good example our Constitution, written in 1789, you look at every other country, what's happened since 1789. I mean, France has had 15 constitutions. Well, we've had one, and they're one of the stable nations in Europe. You take any continent, you take any nation, you look at what is characteristic for other nations, and then you consider America. And we've been blessed with stability like no one else has ever had. I mean, you even take our allies like South Korea, six constitutions since 1948. If you're 90 years old and alive in Poland today, you've lived through seven revolutions and seven constitutions. Wow. We don't think like that. We think in terms of stability, that's not normal. I mean, we have a blessing that other people would love to have. On top of that, America is blessed with a unique creativity. We're not a large nation. We have 4% of the world's population. And yet every year, we produce more patents, more inventions, more medical cures, more discoveries than the other 96% of the nation of the world combined. 4% of the world's population should produce 4% of its great discoveries. No, 4% produces more than the other 96% combined. And then when you get into our national prosperity, that in itself is remarkable because our 4% produces 25% of the world's gross domestic product. Now, and it's not because we have more natural resources, because we don't. Now, in my case, I'm a cowboy. I'm from Texas. We have a ranch, cattle, horses, all the stuff. Farmers represent only 1% of the American population, and yet our 1% produces enough food to feed the entire world. And it's not because we have more farmable land, because America is only 66 in the world in farmable land. But we take what we have and we make it produce like no other nation in the world. Our prosperity is so big that we don't even recognize how prosperous we are. The, the Census Bureau every 10 years does the enumeration of the people required by the Constitution. And you look at what the Census Bureau figures tell us. They say that right now if you happen to live below the poverty level in America... And we don't want anyone living below poverty level. But if you do, you're more likely to own a telephone, a television, an air-conditioned automobile. You're more likely to eat more red meat and have more square footage of living space than the average middle class in Europe. 
Do you get that? If you're in poverty in America, your lifestyle's higher than middle class in Europe. Europe is the second richest place on the face of the earth. And if you're in poverty in America, you're higher than those who live in the second richest place. It's amazing. You see, the World Bank sets a standard for poverty. And right now, the standard for poverty across the world is if you make a dollar and 25 cents a day, you live in poverty. That's $456 a year. If you're in a prosperous nation, if you're in a developing nation, they raise it to $2 a day is the poverty standard. That's $730 a year. So at that level of what the World Bank defines as poverty, we have 1.9 billion people in the world living in poverty. 456 a year, 730 a year. You know how America defines poverty? America defines poverty as $40,000 for a family of four. Our poverty standards are 100 times higher than the rest of the world, which is why the whole world wants to come to America and live in poverty. If they just come here and be in poverty, they've raised their lifestyle. We are blessed in amazing ways that we don't recognize, and this is called American exceptionalism. This was a term given us in 1831 by Alexei de Tocqueville. He traveled to America. He said the condition of the Americans is exceptional. I don't think any nation will ever attain what they have. Now, we, we have this uniqueness, and if you look in our text, and I've been appointed by a bunch of state boards of education and, and governors and et cetera to write history and, and social studies and government standards in those states. So Texas and California and Oklahoma and, and Alabama and Kentucky and Georgia and et cetera. And what we'll do in textbooks is we'll say, no, kids, who's responsible for what we have in America? Who are the leaders responsible? And invariably, we just promptly go to all sorts of our political leaders. We'll say, well, there's George Washington, and, and you've got folks like Thomas Jefferson, and you've got John Hancock, and you've got John Adams, and, and, which is great. They're all great leaders. But it's interesting that 200 years ago, if you ask them who's responsible for what we enjoy today, they didn't name the names. Adams was at 1818, 42 years after the American Revolution. A young historian, Hezekiah Niles, was writing a book on the history of the United States. Now, he wasn't there when it happened in the Revolution, but he knew old man Adams was. And so he went to Adams and said, hey, you know, we enjoy all these blessings. Who's responsible for all this? And Adams said, hmm. And he didn't start naming people like George Washington and Ben Franklin. Adams said, so you want to know who's responsible for what we enjoy now? I said, yeah. He said, well, right up top, you got the Reverend Dr. Samuel Cooper. Of course, there's the Reverend Dr. Jonathan Mayhew. Don't forget the Reverend George Whitfield. Oh, you got the Reverend Charles Johnson. Preachers? Now, we didn't get this in history class. This, this isn't what we studied. See, we don't study these guys. We don't study preachers or whether they're white or black. I mean, who in the world is Richard Allen or Absalom Jones or John Moran or Lemuel Hank? We don't know these names today. But they're the names that were named back then. And great example. Take this guy, Harry Hoosier. Harry Hoosier's a black evangelist. Harry Hoosier, Hoosier preached in the First Great Awakening. He's there with George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards and Gilbert Tennant. He's there with all these famous preachers, Samuel Davies. He actually drew larger crowds than they did. Now, Benjamin Rush, who's a signer of the Declaration, said that he heard Harry Hoosier preach. He said he's the greatest orator I've ever heard. Well, wow, he'd heard Patrick Henry and Jefferson, all these other things. He said, no, Harry Hoosier's the great. Now, Harry didn't like preaching like everybody else preached. Harry was a little different. He wanted to preach out in the really wild frontiers, out where the really tough guys were, out in the rugged country. And he did, and that's where he went to preach. And by the way, do, do you recognize the name there, Hoosier? Does that sound familiar to anybody? At that time, Indiana was the wild, rough frontier. That's where all the tough guys were. And so he goes out there and preaches. And as all these guys start getting converted and they come to Christ, their, their friends would look at them and say, what happened to him? Oh, he's one of those Hoosier guys. 
I wonder how many folks who live in Indiana know that they were named after a black evangelist. Probably none. I have met one person from Indiana who knew where the name Hoosier came from. Wouldn't you think that we might somehow mention where the name came from? No, preacher, you can't do that. I was recently involved with the state doing their social studies standards. And so we got to civil rights. We were talking about uh, Dr. Martin Luther King. And I said, well, let's make sure we call him the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King because he was a church pastor. That's the reason he got involved. His famous letter from Birmingham jail is written to other pastors saying, guys, how can you not see what the Bible says about involvement? And so he's a pastor. They said, we can't put in there the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. We can't put pastor. I said, Why? Well, we just can't. Well, it's history. Wasn't he a pastor? Yeah, he was a pastor. We just can't put that in. I mean, it's so wild how far we've gone and wanting to even acknowledge what history itself acknowledged and what these guys said. But having said that, going back to John Adams, why in the world would John Adams point to a bunch of preachers and say these are the guys responsible for what we enjoy today? Well, if you take the Declaration of Independence, it starts with six immutable principles of government. Those six principles are all encapsulated in the U.S. Constitution. Everything in the Constitution goes back to one of those six principles. It then follows up with 27 grievances, 27 reasons we separated from Great Britain. And historians have documented that every single right set forth in the Declaration of Independence had been preached from the American pulpit prior to 1763. You know what that means? That means the Declaration of Independence is nothing more than a listing of the sermons we've been hearing in church for the 20 years leading up to the American Revolution. Nobody thinks of the Declaration as a list of sermons, but that's exactly what it was. And it's interesting. The British knew how important that the Christians were and the church was and how important the preachers were. The British called the American preachers, they called them the Black Robe Regiment because all the preachers back then wore black robes. But the British said if it hadn't been for that Black Robe Regiment of those preachers, America would still be a happy British colony. I mean, they literally blamed the church and the preachers for what happened. And that's why when the British came to America, sent their troops to America, and for example, they came to New York for the first time in 1777, landed in New York City. You know what happened? British troops got off the ships, New York City, just arrived in New York City. There are 19 churches in New York City. They went through the town destroying them. They burned 10 to the ground. They desecrated the other nine. They went across New Jersey burning churches. They went across Virginia burning churches. They blamed the church. They blamed pastors and Christians for what was going on in the American Revolution. They wanted to punish those guys, and that's exactly what they did. Now, having, having said that, what kind of sermons were we preaching back then that seemed to shape the way people thought? Well, there's a lot. We're very blessed. We own about 100,000 documents from before 1812. I own thousands of the handwritten documents of George Washington, Jefferson, Adams, etc. own thousands of sermons from back then. And one of the most popular types of sermons was what's called an annual sermon. An annual sermon is a sermon that you will hear preached every single year you go to church. You will hear a Christmas sermon every year. You'll hear an Easter sermon. You'll hear a Thanksgiving sermon. Another sermon we heard every single year was called an election sermon. For 270 years... Every year, we got an election sermon at church. Now, the reason we did was pretty simple. We started having elections in America back in 1619. With those elections in 1619, we believe out of the Scriptures, out of Titus, out of Jude, out of 1 Timothy, out of 1 Peter, out of Romans, that government is ordained by God. That's an institution that God ordained. All right, so God ordained government. So what type of government did God give America? Well, really easy. He gave us self-government. We get to choose our leaders. Okay, well, if God gave us self-government, what does he say about choosing the right kind of leaders? And so starting in 1633 and continuing for 270 years, every year, not every election, but every year, 
we had an election sermon talking about the right kind of leaders and how to choose them. Verses that we had in these type of sermons often included things like Exodus 18:21, Deuteronomy 1:15 and 16, Deuteronomy 16:18, Proverbs 29, Acts 6. These are all passages that talk about how to choose the right kind of leaders in civil government. So that's what we had. 200. We shaped the way that we thought. The Bible shaped that for us. We also had sermons like, and this next sermon I chose because you'll recognize the names in it. This is a sermon preached in front of John Hancock, sign of the Declaration. Now, he's the governor of Massachusetts. It's also a sermon preached in front of Sam Adams, another sign of the Declaration, father of the American Revolution. He's lieutenant governor of Massachusetts. It's a sermon preached in front of the Council, Senate, and House of Representatives. For 170 years, we started state legislative sessions by having the House and the Senate, Governor, Lieutenant Governor, got all the state governments together, brought in a preacher to talk to them as we started the state legislative session. Whatever the issue was, the Bible dealt with it. The 613 civil laws in the Bible, God deals with everything. And so as, if it was education was the issue, we'd talk about that. If the issue was debt, we would talk about debt. If economics or whatever it was, we talked about it. As a matter of fact, it's interesting. Bible even is a very explicit on economics and taxes. You see, we used to know that what we call the free market economic system that produced all of our prosperity historically was built on five Bible verses in America. 1 Timothy 5 eight, 2 Thessalonians 3.10, Matthew 20, Luke 19, Matthew 25. So we knew that the economic system came from that. And by the way, we had presidents in the United States used to tell us that until about 50 years ago, and then we seemed to have forgotten our history. It used to be the presidents who told us that our economic system came from the Bible. So we would have sermons where we would Stand from the legislature and say, well, if you're looking at raising revenue, you can do taxes. And the Bible allows capitation taxes, but you cannot use progressive taxes. And by the way, the Bible also condemns an estate tax and it condemns a capital gains tax. But we would go through and show what taxes out of the Bible were permissible and what were not. Well, that's the kind of guidance we gave to state legislators straight out of the Bible. And not only John Hancock and Sam Adams, but you have folks like Sam Huntington signed the Declaration of Independence. He was a, he was a general in the Revolution. He became a governor afterwards. You have Oliver Wolcott, who was also signer of the Declaration. You see the General Assembly of, of Connecticut here. 170 years is how we started state legislative sessions. Now, obviously... If we tried to do something like that today, they say, that's unconstitutional. You can't do that. Time out. It's the guys who signed the documents that were doing this. How's it unconstitutional? When they're the ones who are doing this very stuff. See, this is typical for what we had, but we don't know this part of our history anymore. Uh, here's another sermon. This is a sermon, a voice of warning to Christians on the ensuing election of a president of the United States. Really? Absolutely. We talked about all sorts of stuff because... Christians didn't have less of a right of free speech than anybody else did. Matter of fact, we had a biblical perspective on free speech. We could speak about a lot of stuff and give God's perspective on it. So this is what we did, but obviously we don't do this anymore now. Now, how did that happen? A lot of it has changed by the way the Supreme Court has shaped our culture. Uh, I've been involved in seven cases of the U.S. Supreme Court, all dealt with religious liberties, religious expression, First Amendment kind of stuff. But back in a case called Everson versus Board of Education a few decades ago, the Supreme Court, in that case, said religion is really important in America. We are founding on religious liberties. It's so important we have a whole amendment in the Constitution to protect religious liberty. And so the court says, you know, religion is really important, but we need you to do something with your religion now. Now, religion is important, but starting now, we need you to express your faith at home or in church. We don't need it out in public anymore. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you like praying, please pray all you want. But let's not have prayer at a high school football game anymore. 
And if you like the Ten Commandments, man, stick them up in the foyers of the church. That look great. Ten Commandments in the foyer of the church. Let's just not have them inside the courtrooms anymore. And if you like nativity scenes, aren't they really beautiful over the mantelpiece at Christmas time with the fireplace? Let's just not have them in the city parks anymore. And so what happened, we've gone through several decades now being told that we need to compartmentalize our faith. Our faith is protected by the First Amendment. It's really part of America. But we need you to keep it out here to the side. And so what we're taught is, you know, Bible, Christianity, religion is really important, but education goes over here. And Bible and Christianity religion is so important, but law and government and politics go over here, you know, separation church and state. And, and Bible and Christianity religion is really important, but over here we have medicine. Over here we have economics. Over here we have health care. Over here we have fine arts. Over here we have athletics. We've been taught to compartmentalize our faith. As a result, a lot of Christians now believe that there is a difference between the secular and the spiritual. Now, I guarantee you, God does not believe that. I mean, can you imagine being at the great final judgment? There in Revelation, the, the books of works are open, the land books of life open, and you're just a fly on the wall, and you're watching this, and here comes a guy, and the books are open, judgment and rewards and punishments are given. Here comes nothing. You're just watching this. And then here comes the guy, and God says, whoa, time out. That guy was involved in politics. My word doesn't apply to him. He's off the hook. Send me somebody else. It's not going to happen. I mean, somehow we think that that's secular stuff and God's not involved in secular. No, God's word is involved in every single aspect of life. He does not compartmentalize faith. Neither did we in America for a very long time. Now, we've come to the point where we have. And I think the point where we are now is well described by a passage in Romans 12, 1 and 2. This is an old colonial church, by the way. This is back where those kind of sermons were preached and the type of things we did. But in Romans 12, 1 and 2, in the King James, it says, Be not conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. I love this passage in the Phillips translation. In the Phillips translation, it says, Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. And in a very real sense, we've allowed people who hate Christians, who hate the church, who hate the Bible to tell us what our role in the world is going to be. They tell us what we can and can't speak about, where we can and can't speak. We can't speak. You can stand at two-foot square right behind the pulpit, but don't even think about speaking outside of that. And so people who don't even like us and want to see us gone are now the ones telling us what we can and can't say and when and what we can be involved and how and where we can take our faith. See, we've allowed the world to squeeze us into its, into its own mold. Now, having said that, this man here, Bishop Charles Galloway, was a great historian, great church historian. And he wrote a book about a century ago looking back at the American Revolution and how it went and, and the Christians involved and the church involvement and the pastor's involvement. And in doing that, this is the way he characterized the church leaders and the Christian leaders back in then. He said, mighty men they were. Men of iron nerve and strong hand, an unblenched cheek and heart of flame. And somehow, I don't think that's the way the New York Times describes Christian leaders anymore. I think it's quite different from that. But he continued, he says, God needed not reeds shaken by the wind, nor men clothed in soft raiment, but he needed heroes of hardihood and lofty courage, and such were the sons of the mighty who responded to the divine call. That was a characteristic of the people we had. We had a lot of backbone, a lot of courage. We stood. We spoke very clearly. A lot of people didn't like it back then. We're not getting shot for saying the kind of stuff they got shot for back then or churches burned down over our heads. Or, but they were very bold about stuff. And significantly, a lot of ways to see this, this, this strength that they had, you find it throughout the Revolution. Go back to the, to April, the night of April the, the 18th, 1775. That's where they're sitting out in the harbor waiting to see those 
700 British troops that are coming ashore. Which way are they going? And what do we need to do? And so once they figured out, that's where Paul Revere begins his midnight ride of Paul Revere. Now, Paul Revere did not ride across the, the, the area saying the British are coming. The British. He was more specific than that. He was trying to find two guys. Now, he warned people the British are coming as he went, but he's looking specifically for Hancock and for Sam Adams. That's where he's going. He has to find. Now, why, did he, why was he looking for them? Well, because the British officer that sent those troops ashore gave them a very specific order. I have the actual order that British officer gave. And in that order, he says, you bring back to me the bodies of Hancock and Adams. I want those two guys dead at my feet right here. Sent 700 troops to go find Hancock and Adams, find guns and stores and ammunition and bring them all back. So Revere is riding, looking for them. Now, given communication and given horse you got to ride across massachusetts to find two guys that's a tough assignment where are you going to find them well everybody knew where hancock and adam stayed and he was all the time with reverend jonas clark pastor clark that's where all the patriots met was with pastor clark and that's where they made their plans and did what they did and so when word finally reached hancock and adams and they turned to pastor clark and said pastor british are coming are, are, are your people ready for that he backed up and got indignant and said, of course they are. He said, I've trained them for this very hour. Well, the next morning, the alarm bells went off. The British were coming into Lexington. And as the British came into Lexington, the alarm bells went off, and 70 Americans went out to meet 700 British there at Lexington. That was the Battle of Lexington Green that went on April the 19th, 1775. The shot heard around the world. And it's interesting that... And by the way, the 70 guys who went out there were all out of his church. It was his church that went out there to defend the town against the aggression of the British because the British are coming into town, take what they want, and that's a violation of the British Bill of Rights at that time. So he's got his church out there, and the problem was, and it's not a problem, but it was a problem. And the problem that wasn't a problem was this. He told the guys, he said, guys, God will not bless an offensive war. If you start something and try to do something, he's not going to bless them. Now, he will bless a defensive war. If you get attacked, you have the biblical right to defend yourself. All the verses are clear on that. So he said, you don't get to fire the first shot. If they start it, you can return fire, but you cannot start it. 700 British get the first shot at 70 guys that are not going to shoot first. Well, that's why 18 guys hit the ground that morning at Lexington. 18 guys hit the ground and... Interestingly, the guys who hit the ground, they included folks like white patriot John Robbins, black patriot Prince Esterbrook, black and white on the ground together, but they all went to church together. It was his church out there that was defending the town. Well, now we've been attacked, and so word rides ahead of the British. The British have attacked the Americans at Lexington. And so when the British get the Concord Bridge, which is where they were headed, they were heading Concord to take the supplies there, they were met at Concord Bridge by Reverend William Emerson and 300 guys. And they're there at the bridge, and the British started this, and so we returned fire this time. And this time, British hit the ground. The Americans didn't, the British did. British say, this is not good. We had 70 guys here. We got 300 guys now. We just had some hit the ground. We need to get back to Boston for reinforcements, back to Charleston's where they were headed. 19-mile march back to the east. So they head off, and the problem was, as they headed back to Boston on that road, the road was lined on both sides by Americans shooting at the British from both sides. So the British had to run a, a lead gauntlet to get back to Boston. And where did all these guys come from? 
Oh, it's really easy. You had folks like the Reverend William Payson who grabbed a bunch of guys out of his church and went and started lining the roads. And It was typically pastors and churches responding, stepping up to the need. We've been attacked. We're going to respond to that. I love Pastor, William, uh, Pastor Jonathan French. Pastor Jonathan French was in the pulpit when he heard what had happened. And so Pastor Jonathan French left the pulpit to go to Boston with a musket in one hand and the surgical bag in the other. And I, I don't know, maybe you shoot him and then fix him. I don't know how, quite how that works. But, you know, that was Pastor, Pastor Jonathan French. Well, six weeks later, we have the Battle of Bunker Hill. The Battle of Bunker Hill, now it's really serious because you've got full British forces. You've got the ships firing. You've got all sorts of stuff going on that, that didn't happen in that Lexington Concord. And so as we hear about that, from all over America, as word came, they started sending their people to Boston to stand with those who were under attack. A lot of them didn't get to Bunker Hill in time, but they came into Boston and were able to take Boston back from the British. And so you had folks like up in Vermont, Reverend David Avery took 20 of his guys and led them from his church into Boston. Uh, you had New Hampshire. Uh, Stephen Farrar grabbed 97 of his guys. Now, you did have the Reverend Joseph Willard across town in Boston who formed two full companies out of his church and marched them over to the Battle of Bunker Hill. It was there in time for that. Then down in Pennsylvania, you have the Reverend John Steele who got 900 guys out of his church. And then down in Pennsylvania, you have the Reverend John Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg who took 300 guys from his church. And by the way, Pastor Muhlenberg down here at the bottom, Pastor Muhlenberg, his group became the 8th Virginia Brigade, 8th Virginia Regiment. You'd be surprised to know how many regiments in the American Revolution were merely groups of churches, churches that went out. If you go to Valley Forge and want to see Valley Forge, they still have barracks at Valley Forge that tough winter, and they're called the Muhlenberg Barracks because it was the guys out of his church that built that. He goes on to become one of the highest-ranking military officers in the Revolution. He's Major General John Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg. He's a preacher. George Washington's a Major General. We had 17 Major Generals. Now, George Washington's a Commander-in-Chief, but he's Major General, just like George Washington. So we had so many of the guys that military leaders were pastors. The leader of military forces in New Jersey was the Reverend James Caldwell. I mean, this was typical, but it didn't stop with that. We're willing to step up and do whatever we need to draw the line and say, no, we're going to defend our liberties. A verse they often used back then was, stand fast, therefore, in the freedom wherewith Christ has made us free. We've come here. God gave us freedom. We're going to stand for that freedom. And they did it physically. It cost them their lives very often. But we didn't stop there. Another great historian, J.T. Hadley, a historian back in the 1860s, wrote a lot of books about the American Revolution. And he points out that the patriotic clergy of the Revolution were the soundest statesmen of the time, and that's easy to prove as well. When they signed the Declaration of Independence, what they did is they wiped out 13 British-run governments. Now, the Bible is real clear. You're not to be without civil government. God-ordained government, to be without government is anarchy. God's opposed to that. So these guys went home to their states and started writing state constitutions. That's why you find 1776, you've got the Virginia Constitution, South Carolina Constitution, North Carolina, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, all these constitutions, 1776. It is so amazing to see that so many of those constitutions were written by ministers of the gospel. And some of these constitutions still in effect today, written long ago by ministers who were the ablest statesmen of the time. And in addition to what they did, we get down to the revolution, and now we we have a constitution. We're working on a constitutional convention. And one of the problems we have today is that we are taught so little about the people involved in this. Uh, I speak at universities and law schools all over the nation. I can put that picture up and say, hey, kids, who do you recognize up there? And they say, well, there's George Washington sometimes. A lot of times they can't even find Washington. And some of them will recognize Ben Franklin. 
But it never goes beyond that. They don't have a clue who the other guys are. I can say, well, th this guy right there, that is Abraham Baldwin. He's the youngest theologian in America. He's 21 years old, professor of divinity at Yale University. He founded, the, he founded the University of Georgia, and it was a university to train ministers of the gospel. I can take you to this table right here. It's loaded up with theologians. This man in the middle is Roger Sherman. Uh, he wrote the entire doctrinal creed for his denomination in Connecticut. Uh, left of him is William Samuel Johnson, theologian from New York. The guy leaning over the table right there, that's William Livingston. He's from New Jersey. He was a missionary to the Mohawk Indians. I take you through all these other guys that we never talk about anymore. And guess what? Just tons of Christian leaders, tons of ministers involved. And it's kind of interesting that if you know the Bible, and a lot of folks today don't, but if you know the Bible, you will find all sorts of Bible quotations throughout the Constitution, direct quotations right out of the Bible. Now, there's a lot of people today who say, oh no, the Constitution is a secular document. It's a godless document. As a matter of fact, one of the famous books that's being used right now in universities, written by two Cornell University professors. It's called The Godless Constitution. Oh, no, it was all secular. You know, when somebody today tells me the Constitution is godless or that it's secular, what they have just done is they have told me that they are biblically illiterate, that they wouldn't recognize a Bible verse if it bit them in the ankle because the Constitution is loaded up with those principles it's just that we don't recognize that anymore. Now, once we've done the Constitution... We've got to get this thing ratified before we can have have it work in the nation. So you got to send it to 13 states. Well, we got this great government document coming to the states. Where are you going to hold your ratification conventions? Real simple. You do it at the state capitol. Mm, no, no. If you're in Massachusetts or if you're in North Carolina or other states, they held the ratification conventions to ratify the U.S. Constitution at churches. That's where the ratification conventions were held. And by the way, each state had to elect specific ratification delegates to go ratify the document. And 44 of the delegates who ratified the Constitution of the United States were ministers, ordained ministers. Now, once we get the Constitution ratified, we choose our president. We've now got a Congress that's going. And one of the first things we do is we write the Bill of Rights in the Congress because that's part of the condition ratifying the Constitution. Six states said we want amendments added. There's conditional ratification given by several states. We'll ratify it only if you add a Bill of Rights. So we add the Bill of Rights. And, and, and adding that Bill of Rights, that bill of, if you look at the bottom of the Bill of Rights, first ten amendments, actually twelve amendments, only ten passed then. Uh, one of the other t two amendments didn't pass, passed in 1992. So 12 amendments proposed, 11 have now passed. But of that Bill of Rights th that we have, there's two signatures at the bottom. One of the signatures at the bottom is John Adams right there, Vice President of the United States, which means he's President of the Senate. The other one is right here, Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg. And Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg, Speaker of the House, he is the Reverend Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg. He was a pastor out of New York. He was the brother of John Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg, who led his 300 men out. He's the major general guy. That, that's his brother. And it's amazing that the first Speaker of the House is not only a preacher, but a whole bunch of the members of the First Congress are also preachers as well. You see, these guys didn't write the First Amendment because it guarantees separation of church and state. It says no such thing. It guaranteed the free exercise of religion. And that's what they were after protecting. And so, you know, so much of this is, is now gone from us, but the evidence in the history is really clear. You look at America and what we have, if it hadn't been for the church, we don't enjoy what we have today. Now, the church is being told, you've got no place in the civil arena. Get the heck out of here. Stay away from politics and government. You wouldn't even have the system if it hadn't been for the church and Christian leaders. Now we're being told, we've we got to get out of the playbox. We've we got to get out of the sandbox. We can't play in the sandbox anymore. Now, 
It's significant that when you look at what we have here in this American exceptionalism that the church helped produce, what philosophy produced the uniqueness we have? I mean, literally, why can't any nation take and do what we've done? Well, the answer is they can. God's no respecter of persons. He is no respecter of nations. Any nation that will take the right principles and build on the right principles will get the right results. America is not unique in that sense. It's just that we're the only nation who's done it to this point. So what are the principles and ideas that we use that made us so different? It's easy. Go back to our birth certificate, the national birth certificate. Forty-five words give forth the three fundamental principles of American government, and then there's three more below that, and then everything in the Constitution goes to one of those six principles. The first three principles, let me just read you that part of the Declaration. It says, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. Now, take those 45 words. There are three fundamental theses that come out there. The first one, these words, all men are created equal, they're endowed by the Creator. What we get right here is, in the Declaration, we're told there is a divine Creator. Now, today we're told, well, you're welcome to believe that, but that's got to be private because government can't take a position on religion, has to be neutral in religion. There's people in government who don't like God, who don't like religion, and so we, we, we can't. Time out. This is not a private letter that was written from one person to another. This was the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America. This is a governing document that announces to the world, and that's what they said. We're telling the whole world why we're doing what we're doing. And they tell the whole world, we in American government believe there's a divine creator. That's not a neutral position. Now, you, you, don't have to be, uh, you don't have to believe in God to live here, but the nation does. That's what the nation is based on is a belief in God. It's that simple. And that's why when George Washington became president of the United States, it's interesting, having gone through this, knowing the philosophy, when he becomes president, he is the one who calls for the first ever national call for the people to honor and recognize God. It was this proclamation right here. This is the original that we have. And what you have here, the first call to have a time of prayer and seeking God as a nation. Now, it's, he did it October the 17th, 1789. But why did he do this? Why did, why did George Washington... Excuse me, I'm about to sneeze. Why did George Washington call the nation to a time of honoring and recognizing God? Excuse me. He tells us right here. This is why. Look, look what George Washington said. He says, it's the duty. And notice the word duty. Military guys still understand this word. A lot of rural people understand this word. Uh, duty, the original definition of duty used back then was a legally binding contractual obligation. Uh, I'm a rancher. I built houses for a number of years as well. All the 30 years I was building houses and doing stuff, I built so many houses, and I never signed a piece of paper with my bank at all. I went and shook hands with the bank president, and I'd get $100,000 or whatever I needed to build a house because your word, you had a duty to keep your word. You'd break yourself before you broke your word. I mean, that's just the way America ran for years, that duty to keep your word. So duty is a legally binding contractual obligation. I didn't have to put it down in pen and ink because I did by giving, by giving my pledge. That was my duty. But in 1913, duty was defined as a responsibility. And today's definition of duty is that which one ought to do. Well, that's a long way from a legally binding contractual obligation George Washington said it is a legally binding contractual obligation of nations, not of individuals. 
He said, nations have a legally binding contractual obligation to do four things concerning God. Look at the four verbs. Washington says the duty of nations, number one, to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God. Number two, to obey his will. Number three, to be grateful for his benefits. Number four, humbly to implore his protection and favor. And that's the duty of nations. That was our belief. This is a national responsibility. It's a contractual obligation we owe to God to do these four things right here. So that was our first point of American government is we in government believe that there's a God. The reason that's significant is the second point because it says they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. We believe that not only was there a creator, but the creator gave us a certain set of rights that did not come from government and they're higher than any rights that are given by government. Now, rights can come only from God or from man. If they come from man, then man can regulate them. If they come from God, then they can't be regulated by man. It, it's a matter of jurisdictions. And what we have done is recognize a higher jurisdiction than government. Government is not the end-all, be-all. There's something higher than government, and that's God. In, in my case, as a rancher, I've got a nice red Ford pickup. You know, I look over at my neighbor's ranch, and he's got a white Ford pickup. I like red Ford pickups. I'm going to go over there and paint his pickup red. So I paint his pickup I can't go paint his pickup red. It doesn't belong to me. It's not my jurisdiction. I can paint anything red on my property I want to. I can't get over there. See, that's the way we used to understand government. This is God's stuff over there. I can't go mess. I'm just in civil government. I can mess with certain things, but I can't go mess with that. And inalienable rights were over in that category. There were the things that God gave man, and government cannot touch them. There is a creator. He gives a certain set of rights that are higher than any rights given by government. And now, an inalienable right today, people hear that. Most people can't define it. So what is an inalienable right? Well, let the guys who wrote the documents tell us. You have folks like John Dickinson, who not only helped with the Declaration, becomes a signer of the Constitution. He said an inalienable right is a right which God gave to you, which no inferior power has a right to take away. It's a right that God gave you, and government cannot remove that right from you, can't regulate that right, can't abolish that right. Now, they can do that to their own rights. Anything the government gives that comes from them, they can regulate or even abolish, but not God's rights. Look at the definition given by Alexander Hamilton. He's a general in the Revolution. He signed the Constitution, one of the three authors of the Federalist Papers. He said, Inalienable rights are not to be rummaged for among old parchments and musty records. These are not rights written down by government. They didn't originate with government. He said, They're written as with the sunbeam and the whole volume of human nature by the aid of divinity itself and can never be erased or obscured by mortal power. These are rights that are higher than anything you'll find in, in government documents. And then John Adams, I love his definition. He says, Enable rights are antecedent to all of the government. They cannot be repealed or restrained by human laws. Their rights derived from the great legislator of the universe. He says these are rights that came before any human government. So no human government gave us these rights. These rights come from God. Okay, so these are God-given rights. But what are our God-given rights? Well, Sam Adams, the father of the American Revolution, said, Well, we told you in the Declaration that, among others, there were three inalienable rights. He said, First is a right to life, secondly to liberty, thirdly to property. And then 11 years later, when we did the finish the, the revolution, we did the Bill of Rights. He said, Remember that we told you there were three inalienable rights, but there were among others? So we're going to list the among others now. You have the First Amendment, inalienable right to worship God according to the dictates of conscience. You have the Second Amendment, inalienable right to defend yourself. Call it the right of biblical self-protection, the right to keep and bear arms. You have the Third Amendment, and these are all God-given rights. It didn't come from government. You have the Third Amendment, God-given right to the sanctity of your home. You have a Fourth Amendment, God-given right to justice. You have a Fifth Amendment, God-given right to, to the protection of your private property. I mean, all these are inalienable rights. Government. You can't mess with these. So those are inalienable rights. Now, this is where we get in, and that's the second point. The third point of American government, it says that to secure these rights, 
Government's intended among men. Ah, now we get the purpose for government. Why does government exist? To secure these rights. The principal purpose of government is to protect inalienable rights. Government doesn't exist to give us all a job or have us a prosperous economy. Government exists to make sure we have the right to practice our God-given inalienable rights. After that, we'll see about jobs and economy and everything else. Now, it is significant with this to see how the founders talked about this. You take, for example, James Wilson. He's one of only six founding fathers who signed the Declaration and the Constitution. He started the first law school in America. He was put on the U.S. Supreme Court as an original justice by George Washington. I have his original law books. This is what he tells students. He said, students, he said, the principal object of government, the number one reason government exists, is to acquire a new security for the enjoyment of those rights which were previously entitled by the immediate gift of our all-wise, all-beneficent creator. reason government exists is to make sure you have a right to practice your inalienable rights. We also have Sam Adams who said, very similar, Sam Adams said, government was originally designed for the preservation of the inalienable rights. He said, among which, first is a right to life, saying liberty, third is property. We saw that quote a minute ago. Yeah, but he's saying government exists to protect these rights, first, life, second. Now, I want to point your attention to that first is a right to life. See that? We think, boy, wouldn't that have been really cool if they'd been talking about abortion back then? It would be really nice. That'd help us the Supreme Court arguments that we have. But obviously that abortion was not an issue in their generation. And so, time out. Who said abortion wasn't an issue in their generation? I mean, quite frankly, Ecclesiastes 1.9 says there's nothing to do under the sun. Human behavior hadn't changed. As long as there are people who are pregnant, there are people who didn't want to be pregnant, which is why in our collection we have this book on abortion from 1808 in America. This is not a new issue. They wrote explicitly about it. Right to life did mean a right to life in the abortion sense of the term. Matter of fact, you go back to those law books done by James Wilson. Look what he told students. James Wilson telling students, he said, with consistency, beautiful and undeviating, Human life, from its commencement to its close, is protected by the common law. He said in the contemplations of law, life begins when the infant is first able to stir in the womb, and by the law that life is protected. Hey, he said as soon as you know there's life inside, at that point that life is... And he said, how does it protect it? It's protected by the common law. The common law is the Seventh Amendment to the Constitution. You see, we argued the abortion issue under the Ninth and the Fourteenth Amendments. The Founding Fathers said, no, it's a Seventh Amendment. It's an inalienable right. This is an inalienable right. He said, as soon as you know there's life in the womb. Now, the issue doesn't change, but the technology does. Back then, how long did it take you to know for sure that there was life in the womb? It might be two, three months. Today, we know within six days of fertilization. The point is, as soon as you knew that there was life in the womb, by the law, that life is protected because the purpose of government is to protect first the inalienable right to life. This is what made us differ from Europe. John Witherspoon, signer of the Declaration, President of Princeton, John Witherspoon talked about how that in Europe, they think that it's parents that give life to children. He said, not in America. We know that God gives life to children. It's not parents that give life to children. In Europe, they think that. And because they think that parents give life to children, in Europe, they let them have abortions over there. And as he pointed out, he said, a perfect right in a state of natural liberty is the right to life. He said, but not here in America. He said, in America, he said, we have denied the power of life and death to parents. He said, the right to life doesn't come from parents. It comes from God. That's why we don't let parents take the right to life of any of their unborn children. So this is the position we had. Now, all of this deals with right to life, and I want to emphasize for a moment that word first. 
Now, I've been involved in the political area for a long time. I held political office in Texas for nine years. I've trained about 2,000 candidates for office. I work as a consultant for a lot of candidates, probably 100 members of Congress I consider to be very good friends. work with these guys very closely. And that word is significant because if I can find out where any person is on the life issue, if I, if I find out what they believe about the life issue with a 90% degree, excuse me, with a 90% degree of certainty, I can tell you how they will vote on every other issue they'll come up against. I mean, to this day, if I know where someone is on right to life, I can tell you how they voted on TARP. I can tell you how they voted on stimulus. I can tell you how they voted on the U.N. Convention on the Rights of the Child. I'll tell you how they voted on the U.N. Small Arms Treaty. All i got to know is where they are on life because, you see, life is the first of the inalienable rights. And if you don't get the big things right, you don't get the little things right that come afterwards. They're all inalienable rights, but you'll find that those that are wrong in the life issue are also wrong in the First Amendment and inalienable right to worship God according to the dictates of conscience. If you're wrong in the life issue, say, whoa, kid, you can't say God at graduation. What were you thinking? If you're wrong in the life issue, you'll be wrong in the inalienable right to express your faith. If you're wrong in the life issue, you're also going to be wrong in the Second Amendment right to defend yourself. Oh, we've got to get rid of those guns. That's terrible. If you're wrong in life, you'll be wrong in the right of self-defense. If you're wrong in the life issue, you'll be wrong in the Third Amendment right or in the sanctity of the home. It isn't amazing that those that are wrong in the life issue are also wrong in the traditional marriage issue. Those two things go together because they're all inalienable rights. If you don't get the big one right, you don't get the others right. If you're wrong in the life issue, you'll be wrong in the Fifth Amendment right of private protection. You'll think like the Supreme Court does in the Kelo decision that, you know, government really belongs to, property really belongs to government, and you're not doing with your property what you ought to. So we'll take it and give it to somebody else who can make it more productive and pay more taxes on that property. All of this stuff are inalienable rights. But if you get the life issue wrong, you get all those wrong. Now, with this, all these I've shown you are what are called social issues. And we're told by our experts in Washington, D.C. that the people really don't care about social issues. All they care about are economic issues. Okay, so let's play that game for a minute. Let's, let's pretend that everything we care about is an economic issue. And if all you care about is economic issues, then there's a ton to care about. I mean, there's a ton of economic issues to focus on. Now, what's interesting is if you're really in economic issues, you need to keep up with groups like Americans for Tax Reform, National Taxpayers Union, Americans for Prosperity, Freedom Works, because they're in economic. They don't care a whit about marriage. They don't care a whit about self-defense. They don't care a whit about life. They care about economic issues. And the average congressman in D.C., Deals, there are between 10 and 13,000 bills introduced every session of Congress. Give our, put our heads together tonight, we could probably name 10 or 12 that we've heard about in the news. Mm, 10 to 13,000 a session. These guys have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of votes we never hear about, hundreds of votes on economic issues. And these groups monitor every member of the House of Representatives, 435. The member, they'll, they'll monitor all 100 members of the Senate, and they produce a voting record showing you the best economic representatives all the way through to the worst. You get the 100 percenters all the way down to zero percenters. And I don't have, time, I don't have space to put them all on here, but these are 100 percenters. Okay? These, these are all the good guys, and it goes all the way down to the bottom, zero percenters. These are the, these are the guys that care about it economic issues. Interesting thing. If I will bump their voting record up against the national right to life, it's a one-to-one -one correlation. The guys who get the life issue right get the economic issues right as well. On the other hand, those who are the worst economic reps, you bump them up against national right to life, they don't do any good on economic stuff. If you're about 23% right to life, you'll be about 23% good on economic issues. You're about 76% good on right to life, you'll be about 76% good on economic issues. And you see, and that makes a lot of sense because if they won't protect your life, why in the heck would they protect your money? 
Your life's worth a whole lot more than your money is. And so that's why life is the first issue, both for social issues and for economic issues. It goes back to that life issue. That is the first issue. And, and quite, I get a lot of people who want me to help them or endorse them. Or, you know, here comes the dog catcher. He says, will you endorse me for office? And I say, dog catcher? Yeah. What's your position on abortion? Wait a minute. I'm a dog catcher. What does that matter? It matters because it tells me your whole view of government. If I know what your position is on that, I know how you view government. And the problem is you might not stay dog catcher. You might decide to run for city council, and you might decide to run for mayor, and then you might run for school board, and then you might run for state rep and state senator. Then you might run for governor. And it's a heck of a lot easier to knock you off when you're a dog catcher than it is when you're a governor. I mean, it's just a whole lot easier to do. So life is the issue on this thing. Now, in, in, the, in this case... That's why, for me, Bruce is an absolute no-brainer. His big issue is, he is he'll be the first to tell you, I'm right to life and proudly so. I wonder how he is on economic issues. Oh, wait a minute. Pastor Bill just told us about that. He's really good on economic issues, isn't he? He was a state treasurer, cut all this junk from the budget. See, if you know where they are in life, then the other stuff comes natural. That's just part of the worldview that comes. And so that's why I have no difficulty doing everything I can to help Bill get in there because that's the kind of stuff that will fix Congress economically as well as all the cultural issues, everything else that we've got. It goes back to the life issue. Now, finishing this up for my part, and then I'll turn it to Bruce for a bit. This man, Charles Finney, is a revivalist in the Second Great Awakening. Now, he was a significant influence in Second Great Awakening, just like George Whitford was in the First Great Awakening. But he grew up listening to the speeches of George Washington and John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. He was aware of all the stuff the church did back in the founding of America and how influential it was. And in his generation, there was no thought of it being anything other than that same influence. Matter of fact, in his generation, the big issue became slavery. Start with the Missouri Compromise in 1820, and now Congress promoting slavery big time. And so he takes a huge stand. He says, church we've got to stand we've got to stand against this and he trains all sorts of preachers at his seminary at his university uh, it's the first university in america to treat men and women blacks and whites as equals the kids out of his university largely ran the underground railroad took slaves out of slavery and put them into freedom and, and yeah I mean, he's very much culturally involved he also was a huge theologian he wrote um the, the he brought all sorts of systematic lectures on theology he wrote revival lectures etc and preachers across the country looked at him big time. His books were all bestsellers because people learned from his theology and teachings. And it's interesting that he knew how much impact the church and Christians and Christian leaders had. And that's why he told preachers in his generation. He said, brethren, our preaching will bear its legitimate fruits. I mean, look at the evidence we have. That's how America was established. He said, but on the other hand, he said, if immorality prevails in the land, faults are ours in a large degree. If immorality takes over, it's because we as Christians, we as church, we as Christian leaders are not doing what we're supposed to do. He says, if there's a decay of conscience, Pope is responsible for it. He said, if, there, if the public press lacks moral discrimination, the pulpit is responsible for it. He says, if the church is generally worldly, the pulpit is responsible for it. He says, if the world loses its interest in religion, we Christians, we, we the church, we in the pulpit, we're responsible for it. He said, if Satan rules in our halls of legislation, pulpit's responsible for it. He said, if our politics become so corrupt, the very foundations of our government are ready to fall away, pulpit's responsible for it. He said, let us not ignore this fact, my dear brethren, but let us lay it to heart and be thoroughly awake in our responsibility to the morals of this nation. Then he says this. 
He says the church must take right ground in regard to politics. He said politics are part of a religion in a country. This, whoa, what do you mean? Real simple. Remember, God gave us a government. The government he gave us is a self-governing nation. He said, guys, I'm giving you government. You guys get to run it. You take care of it till I come back. Luke 19, 13, he says, occupy till I come. We will stand before him one day and he'll say, I gave you your life. What would you do with that? And we'll have to account. He'll say, I gave you your family. What would you do with that? We'll have to account for that, too. I gave you your material possessions. What did you do with those? We'll have to account. I gave you your government. What did you do with that? Oh, the Lord decided not to get involved in that one. Not an acceptable answer. You remember the story of the talents in Matthew 25 and the minus in Luke 19? He gave every servant a trust, and one servant said, I don't want any part of that. I'm not going to be. And he's the guy who got nailed. You know, we may not have been asked to be born in America. We might not have asked for this government. doesn't matter. God gave it to us. He said, you guys take care of this. You're the stewards over this till I get back. And that's what we're going to answer for. That's why he said politics are part of a religion in countries such as this, and Christians do their duty to the country as part of their duty to God. He said God will bless or curse this nation according to the course that Christians take in politics. Now, the reason that is true, and by the way, I will point out, that this was a particular part of lectures. He, he taught specifically that there is a science to revival. If you're praying for revival in America right now, he said there are certain clear biblical things you can do that help, to help promote a revival and help bring a revival to bear. So if you want a revival, you read his, his lectures on revival, his revival lectures, and it shows you how you can create a revival in a nation. This is part of that lecture that he gave. This is lecture number 15. It's called Hindrances to Revival. He says, if you refuse to get involved in the culture, you're hindering revival. Because what happens when you get a revival, people want to express their faith. But we have a culture that steps on everybody that wants to express their faith. You know how hard it is to keep a revival moving when the culture and the government and schools and everybody else steps on people who want to express their faith? Well, how did we lose it? Well, we lost it in a very easy manner. You see, if you'll go to Proverbs 29.2, the Scripture says here, When the righteous rule, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, the people groan. It does not take a hearing aid to hear all the groaning that's going on across the nation right now. If there's groaning going on, why is that? It's because the wicked rule. How did the wicked get there? Because we voted them in or we refused to vote one or the other. The only way the righteous rule is for the righteous to vote them into office. That's the only way. Don't, don't expect Planned Parenthood to come out and, and elect Bruce to office. Ain't going to happen. You know, it's just not going to happen. If Bruce gets elected to office, it's because God-fearing people go out and do something. But see... Here's our problem. Statistically, for the last 22 years in America, only one out of four Christians votes in the elections. Only one out of four. Man, now you think about the culture war we're in right now. I mean, you guys in Maine are a perfect example. I sit down in Texas and I watch you guys and I've cheered and I've booed and I've cheered and I've booed. I mean, you go, 2000, you go in 2009, your legislature says we're going to have homosexual marriage and that was bad. And in 2010, you get the citizen veto past that. That was good. In 2012, they repealed that back to gay marriage. And so it's gone. So, I mean, you're in a struggle in this state right here. The two sides are, are just button heads and it's kind of even. And the same thing with abortion. You know, we're passing some restrictions on abortion, but we can't get rid of it. And if this was a Super Bowl, we've had a vicious first half, and we're tied at halftime. They go, man, this is really tough. No, I'm, I'm elated we're tied at halftime because we've only had one-fourth of our team on the field. They had all 11 players out there. We've been playing with three players, and we're tied at halftime. 
If the rest of our team shows up in the second half, we'll kick tail. There is no culture war in America if we ever show up and do this thing. And that's why it comes back to the church. God will bless or curse this nation based on the course that Christians take in politics. Right now, three out of four Christians saying, I don't want to be salt and light in that arena. I refuse to have it. And that, that's why I've got such great hope for America because this can turn into a heartbeat. See, the problem we have, Proverbs 23, 7 says, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. We're convinced that we're the really weird fringe minority out there. Everybody's against us. Bobby Kennedy, who was the attorney general under his brother, President John F. Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy made a statement I really love from a political standpoint. He said 20% of the people oppose everything all the time. That's true. you got 20% of people who are just pure contrarians. They don't think the sun comes up in the east and goes down in the west, and if you say so, they'll fight you over it. I mean, there's just 20% of people who love to fight. So in a political world, if we get a poll that shows 80% support for something, we know that's unanimous. In the political world, 80% means the whole nation supports it. Right now, 86% of the nation thinks that every government meeting from school board through President of the United States should open with public prayer. 86% 86% of the nation thinks school boards, city councils, legislatures. 82% of the nation thinks that every public school should open with daily spoken prayer, not silent prayer, spoken prayer. 76% of the nation thinks that every government building should publicly display the Ten Commandments from school buildings all the way to the Supreme Court. Man, we're not the minority. We're the majority. We just think we're the minority. And so by 75% of us not doing anything, we are the minority. Not that we're the minority. We just are the minority because we've not gotten involved. So that's the challenge we've got is to get involved. We've got a, a website. Oops, excuse me here. Let me hit that just a second. We've got a, a website, uh, National Black Rub Regiment, and it, it, it makes voter registration really easy. You get in your seats, the, the voter registration cards, green cards. Hopefully everybody here tonight is registered. And some of you cannot vote for Bruce because it's the wrong congressional district. But everybody can work for him, and that's, that's something that can be easily done. And if you're not registered to vote, you need to be. But there at that National Black Rub Regiment website, you can get all sorts of tools there. One of the pretty cool tools we have, imagine a bunch of you are up on Facebook. We've got an app that you can load on your Facebook that will check every Facebook friend you have and tell you which of them are registered to vote and which are not registered to vote. Every one of your friends, you can find out. And, you know, a lot of people, oh, yeah, I'm registered to vote because they're ashamed to say they're not. But you know what? We have the largest database in the United States, 200 million names. We're hooked to every secretary of state in the nation. We can tell you who's registered, who's not, and who's voted, and who's not. It's an easy thing to do. So, I mean, go out there on your Facebook and find five of your friends not registered to vote and get them registered. You know, that'll make a huge difference in the election. And on top of that, let's say you want to make a ministry out of getting people where there'll be salt and light. We can give you a little map. Wherever you live, we can show you four, five, eight, ten people living around you. They're not registered to vote. Show exactly how to get to their house. And they'll all be your neighbors. They'll be people you're familiar with. So there's a lot of tools available now that we can use to really get Christians back engaged in this process. And we really do need to get engaged in this process. It makes a huge difference. And in the case of Bruce, I mean, this is the only... Out of both congressional districts, the only guy in either party that's pro-life in either congressional district. I mean, this should be a no-brainer for Christians. If the righteous are going to rule and the people are going to rejoice, then we've got to let good guys to office, and that's what we've got at this opportunity is a chance to do that. So I'll go back to the founders. Life first. You get that life issue first. And everything else, all the constitutional issues are going to be there. You start with that life first issue. So thanks for letting me share it tonight. Bruce, why don't you come up and talk to folks for a while.